There was a former president of Columbia University, and he said there are three kinds of people in the world. Those who don't know what's happening, those who watch what's happening, and those who make things happen. As we turn in our Bible today to Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to see that Nehemiah was in that third category of those who make things happen. And the next week, we're going to look at verses 9 through 20, where we're going to see some lessons in leadership about how Nehemiah went about doing those things. But the foundation of that is what we're looking at today in verses 1 through 8, where we're going to see a process of prayer and planning that Nehemiah used. Now, before Nehemiah ever led, he let God lead him. And then as God was directing him, he looked to see what was needed to accomplish the the goals that God had given to him. There are some people who think that being led by the Spirit means that you never plan. Uh, But having faith doesn't mean that you fail to think through the process or to count the costs. You can read Luke chapter 14, and there Jesus talks about that. He says, only a fool will sit down and begin to build a tower without first considering the cost to make sure he has all that he needs to complete it. And right after that, he says that a king, before he goes out to battle, will consider the strength of the enemy to see if he's able to to win in the battle. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 2 today, what we're going to see is before Nehemiah ever started work on the wall, he had spent long hours in prayer and planning. So when God answered his prayer and the opportunity arose, he was ready to respond. I invite you to look now as we begin reading Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. It says, And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. Now, when we began our study last week in Nehemiah 1.1, you remember it was the month of Chislev, which we saw was late November to early December on our calendars. These are the Jewish names of the month. And now we have Nisan, which would be in the March to early April on our calendars. And so this means that there are four months that have passed, four months that Nehemiah has been praying there was a man who was talking to God one day, and he said, God, what is, what is a million years like to you? And God said, well, it's like a second. And he said, God, what's a million dollars like to you? And God said, well, it's a penny. And the man said, God, can I have one of your pennies? And God said, sure, in a, million, in, in a second. Butchered that joke. <laughs> so when Mordecai, uh, when, when we see Nehemiah here praying, His timetable was one that was very quick, right? He's like, God, just a second. Can you answer this today? And yet we see that God's timeline was different. And there are times that the two don't seem to match. We want God to answer our prayers immediately, right? Have you ever prayed one of those prayers? Lord, give me patience, and I want it now. Isn't that the way we pray? You know, we live in a time where we have uh, microwave dinners and instant breakfasts, and we expect that everything will happen instantaneously. But there are times that God will choose to delay in the way that he answers our prayer. It's, It's not that God lacks power. God has the power. He can answer them immediately, but sometimes he has a better plan. Sometimes there is something happening that we don't yet fully grasp or understand. It could be that he has a timeline different than ours, as we'll see today with Nehemiah. Another thing that was happening with Nehemiah is God was at work in him. Before this man led this massive rebuilding project, God had to work on Nehemiah. He had to bring him to full dependence on God. You'll remember last week we saw the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down for 142 years. 
That's 150 years, a century and a half almost of the walls laying in ruin. We talked last time about how over 50,000 Jews had already returned. There had been two waves of people returning to the city. The temple had been rebuilt, but the walls were still in ruins. And as as Nehemiah is chosen to, to do this, as he pours out his heart in prayer, the tears have also been pouring out. As we saw in Nehemiah 1.4, there it says he wept and mourned for days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And as Nehemiah has carried this burden for four months, he's been able to hide his heartbreak before the king. But, but we read today that, that as he goes before the king, remember, he's the cupbearer. He's the guy that serves the wine. He's the guy that tastes the food. He's, he's the one that stands between the king and, and death. And suddenly we read where it says he had not been sad in his presence. But look at what happens in verse 2. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but, but sadness of heart. And then Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Why was Nehemiah afraid? Well, because in, if you were in the king's court, if you were ever in the presence of royalty, you were not allowed to be sad. You couldn't be bummed out because it might bum out the king. If you've ever read the book of Esther, uh, in the book of Esther, there was a man by the name of Haman, and he was, he was seeking to destroy the Jews. He was jealous of Mordecai, uh, a Jew who was up in the administration. Esther was secretly a Jew. She had not revealed to the king that she was Jewish. And, and Haman had concocted this plan, promised the king riches if he would let him kill all the Jews. And, and so there is this imminent plan of death that is facing all the the. Jews in the kingdom. And in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, it tells us when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Mordecai says there is a day coming where all of the Jews, himself included, are going to be killed. His death is imminent, and yet it says he was not willing to come into the presence of the king in sadness because he knew his death could be immediate. And this is why when Nehemiah, when the king says to Nehemiah, why are you sad? He's very much afraid because it could cost him his life. Now, as he says this, we read in verse 3, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. I may not live beyond the next moment, but you king live forever, right? He says, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and the gates have been consumed by fire? Now, did you notice nowhere does he use the name Jerusalem? Remember last week we talked about how there were enemies of the Jews as they returned to Jerusalem and began to rebuild the city, how a report went back to the king about how they were going to rebel against the king. As the city was fortified, they said, they're going to, they're going to rebel against you. And so Nehemiah knows if he uses the name Jerusalem because the king has stopped the work there that it, it could touch the wrong nerve of the king. And so what he does is he, he describes the city in terms that would touch the right nerve of the king. He says, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate. My father's tombs. You've seen pictures, if you've not yourself personally been to Egypt, of the pyramids. 
Archaeologists uncover all the time monuments and graves and, and massive things that have been dedicated to the, the death of past kings and, and the legacy of, of countries that have existed. And so the king was somebody, ancient kings were very big on preserving the memory of the dead. And so what Nehemiah does here is he talks about uh, the king's sympathies, appeals to these sympathies for the dead as he, he talks about restoring the city where his fathers were buried. And instead of hearing you're a dead man, Nehemiah, for being sad in my presence, uh, verse 4 tells us, then the king said to me, what would you request? And it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I prayed to the God of heaven. Warren Wiersbe has a comment about this verse that makes a powerful point about the privilege that we have in approaching God in prayer. Wiersbe says, It encourages my prayer life when I contrast the earthly throne of Artaxerxes with the throne of grace in heaven. Nehemiah had to wait for an invitation before he could share his burden with the king. But, but we can come to the throne of grace at any time with any need. Artaxerxes saw the sorrow on Nehemiah's face, but the Lord sees our heart and not only knows our sorrows, but he also feels them with us. This is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 14, and I'm sorry, Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. There we read, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our own weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. When we read that we can draw near with confidence, the, the word that is used here literally means to be bold and free in our speech. Bold. And free in our speech. We talked last time as we talked about prayer. Uh, we looked at the model of Acts in Nehemiah's first prayer in chapter 1. A stands for adoration. C, confession. T for thanksgiving. And S for supplication. And I encouraged us to be those who, who follow that. And as we come before God, remember Jesus said, when you pray to God in heaven, call him daddy. Pray our father. Our father, literally Abba, daddy. And, and a parent wants to hear the joys. How was your day? They want to hear your fears, your sorrows. What's wrong? What are you, wh why are you sad? What's hurting? And so this is what Wearsby is talking about, how we get to come before God in heaven, not hiding our sorrows and our fears, but we get to come to him. Now, as we look at this prayer here, it's one of those quick emergency prayers. Last week we talked about this, this real involved prayer, but that's not the only way to pray. There, there are times that we have to shoot up one of those quick emergency prayers. Have you ever been, you know, taking a test and you see a question, I have no idea, God, would you help me, right? Or, or you see the lights of a police car in your rearview mirror and, <laughs> and, and you pray one of those other quick prayers, right, for mercy and grace, even though you just blew through, you know, whatever, the stop sign or the school zone. And so these, there are times that we pray this way. But remember, Nehemiah's prayer here has been built on four months of prayer and fasting. There's this foundation undergirding it. And he says in verse 5, And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. 
And as we look at what Nehemiah does here, it's a great example to us as Christians as to how to approach other people, especially those who are in authority over us. Notice that as Nehemiah speaks, it's with respect and courtesy. He acknowledges the position and authority of the king. He says, if it pleases the king, send your servant. I hear stories all too often of Christians who who will tell me kind of very proudly and smugly, well, I told my boss I'm not going to do this or that because, you know, I answer to the real boss in heaven, right? And, you know, Nehemiah could have said, look, I have a commission king from the real king, the God of heaven. You know what the Bible tells us is we're to obey and submit to those in authority over us. Now, if what they're asking is against God's law and what God calls us to do, you certainly listen to the higher authority in heaven. But you can do it with respect. And this is what Nehemiah does. And in Nehemiah 1.11, we saw he had been praying for God to soften the king's heart. And here in verse 6, we see the answer to that. God had turned the heart of the king to prepare for this request. And so Nehemiah says in verse 6, Then the king said to me, the, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. Now that little side note that says the queen was sitting beside him tells us that this wasn't a big royal banquet. It wasn't a state dinner. As you read through the scriptures, you see that that women were not typically present at those. They would be brought in for a time of entertainment or maybe for counsel. Like uh, when the, the writing happened on the wall and the king's mother came in and said, you need to call this prophet who will help you. And so what this means is it's a private little dinner. It's just the king and the queen. Nehemiah is the cupbearer serving their dinner to them. And then there's this sadness of heart. Now, not only does it show us that it was this private dinner, but it also shows the influence that the queen has. You've probably seen the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now, I'm not endorsing it, right? But in that movie, there's, there's a line where uh, it says the, the mom's talking to the daughter and she says, the man may be the head, but the wife is the neck that turns the head, right? And uh, anybody who's been married for any period of time knows that your, your wife would just a look. Uh, with just a nudge or something, can, can turn the head, right? And so here, we don't hear any conversation, but apparently the wife uh, gives a nod or a nudge. You know, she could have said, what? You can't let him go. Who's going to protect our life? He tastes our food, and if, if Nehemiah goes, are you crazy? We're going to die. But, but there's, there's this God has, has been at work, and he's prepared the request. And so when the king asks him, how long will your journey be? When will you return? It says, Nehemiah says, I gave him a definite time. I gave him a definite time. As I'm talking about prayer and planning, this is part of it. Nehemiah, we don't read, goes, oh, gosh, king, I didn't expect this answer. Um, That's a good question. Um, I don't know, maybe this, or I'm going to have to get back to you on that. It says he was ready. He gave a definite time. Now, later in the series, we'll see when we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14, that he was gone for 12 years. 12 years. Now, I doubt Nehemiah at that moment said, King, I'm going to be gone 12 years. Because the king probably would have said, Whoa, that's a little long. But whatever time he gives him, what we found uh, from secular sources, there were outside things that we can look at that, that parallel times in the Bible that tell us, that confirm things we're reading in the scriptures. And as Artaxerxes was king, there was also one of the areas under his control was Syria. 
And Syria was to the north of where the kingdom of Judah was. And in Syria, there was a rebellion that happened about the same time that these events were happening. They were saying the Jews were going to rebel, but it was Syria to the north. And as Nehemiah, this trusted man, is there as governor of Judah, he served as a buffer between Syria and Artaxerxes' other part of the kingdom. And so it was, very, uh, it was, it was great that Nehemiah was there. And so what probably happens is the king continues to extend his time there saying, you're controlling and keeping this thing from getting out of hand where you are. And so when Nehemiah asks to go, he gives not only a definite time, but look at what else he asks for in verses 7 through 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governor of the providences beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass uh, through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give to me the timber to make beams for the gates in the forest which are in the temple, which are by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. We see that through prayer and planning, Nehemiah has also prepared a list. He has all the logistics, all the needs. He says, King, here's the route I'm going to go. And I know that I'm going to have to pass through these various other areas. So would you grant me letters of passage? Give me the visas that are needed. And I know there are these trouble spots where there's a potential for danger. So I need a security entourage. And, and when I get to Jerusalem, I also am going to need supplies like wood, which was very valuable and hard to come by. So could you give me the timber that is needed? And by the way, here is the name of the guy. Here's the requisition for him. It's like the old uh, radar, you know, going before Colonel Potter saying, sign this, sign this, sign. Well, what is this? Just sign this here, King, you know, da, da, da. And so he, he again didn't say, those are all great questions, King. I'm going to have to do a little homework. I'm going to come back. And, you know, he knew the king was favorable. God had prepared, and, and he had everything in line. He had all the logistical letters. He had all the support things. And so Nehemiah had been praying for four months, but we see here he had also been planning. There are some Christians who excuse themselves from doing any kind of homework in terms of planning by saying, well, I walk by faith. And what they're really saying is, I wing it, and I pray that it's all just going to work out, right? Because if you you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. By planning here, Nehemiah didn't, didn't lack faith. What it instead showed was extraordinary faith. He said, look, I know this request is, is going to be hard to get a favorable response. And then even beyond letting me go, all these other things I'm asking for, those are big asks. And so I'm asking that God would prepare his heart and it would be favorable. And we see here that God has moved in the heart of the king. It's why it says in verse 8, And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. God wants us to pray and seek his will, but the work doesn't stop there. When he makes his will clear to us, we're also to consider the cost and the obstacles to be prepared so that when the next things come, we're, we're ready to move when God gives us the opportunity. Knowing what's ahead does not take God out of the picture. Rather, it brings him into the picture because you can pray specifically. You can say, God, I'm anticipating problems in this area. Would you be at work? Would you go before us? Would you help these things to happen? 
So as you're, as you're thinking in terms and as you look at what you're praying for in life, Proverbs 16.3 tells us, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now that's not a name it or claim it verse where you just say, I asked God, so he's going to do it. What it's saying is commit your plans to God, but he, he's the master architect. He can redraw things. What it's saying is if your plans are in line with God's, then he will bless them and he will allow things to happen. And we need to do as Nehemiah did. And we need to say, God, what do you want? What would you like me to do for you? What is your will? How can I serve you in this particular situation? And God, when we say, here am I, Lord, send me, as we see in the Old Testament, some of the prophets doing, God will use us in amazing ways. He does that here with Nehemiah. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see how God used Nehemiah from rebuilding the walls of the city to rebuilding the actual uh, worship of God with the people, drawing them back to following hard after God. And as great as those things were, there's another amazing thing that's all happening here that's tied into what we're talking about here in Nehemiah chapter 2. And what I'm talking about is found in Daniel chapter 9. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, this is the original Hebrew of Daniel 9.24, and it reads literally, he has decreed 70 sevens. And what it's talking about are the 70 weeks that are decreed of God. Now, there are, these are not weeks of days like a seven-day Monday through, like we're, we think in terms of a week. This is a seven-year period. And we know this because as you go through and you read all through Daniel, uh, you will see other things. Now, let me just say this about what I'm about to go through. This is one of those times where we could dump the truck and your eyes could glaze over and you could say, I don't, I don't know what's going on. So here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm still going to dump a little of the truck, okay, because I have to. But what I've done is I've linked this sermon from Daniel 9:24 through 27. It was a sermon I preached about 10 years ago here at Wayside. And we walked through this prophecy passage in detail. We don't have time today to go all the way down and scuba dive, so we're going to kind of water ski over it. And so what I've done is I've, I've linked this message to this one. So when this sermon gets put up on the website, either later today or possibly as late as Tuesday because of uh, the Labor Day weekend, um, you will be able to click in and listen to this sermon. And all these slides... Uh, I see some of you with your phones out taking pictures. You're welcome to do that. But any slides I ever have in a sermon, we also put up on the website. So you can see those uh, on the website as well. So if you're somebody who loves eschatology, you love to get into the deeper things of the end times, uh, I want you to go back and listen to Daniel 9:24 through 27, this sermon on the 77s. But the reason I'm talking about all of this today, this 490-year period of prophecy, is because it is tied into the decree, as you're about to see, that we're talking about here in Nehemiah chapter 2. What starts this prophetic clock is found in Daniel 9.25. In Daniel 9.25, it says, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now that last line is very important, plaza and moat, even in times of distress, because in the Bible there are three decrees that are possible in terms of wondering, when does this prophetic clock begin when it says from the issuing of a decree? 
Last week, we talked about uh, the first waves of Jews who returned to Jerusalem after captivity. And one of the decrees is found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There, King Cyrus issued a decree uh, that allowed the Jews to return to the land and begin rebuilding the temple. And the temple was rebuilt. The second decree is found in Ezra chapter 7, and it was issued by the king we're looking at today, Artaxerxes I. And Artaxerxes, you remember, the work was going on, but then he is also the king who stopped the work on the walls. Remember, we just read in Daniel 9.25, it will be built again with plaza and moat. Moat is the fortifications, the external uh, walls and fortifications of the city. The plaza is the infrastructure, the other things. The temple is already rebuilt. So this is more than just the temple. This, is, this involves a rebuilding of the walls. And this decree that we're talking about, uh, that where it says that the king gave letters... He issued a decree saying, Nehemiah, you can go. And here are the things. This is a decree we're dealing with. Now, remember that we saw in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, that it was the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when this happens. And that would place the decree somewhere in the March to April of 444 B.C. time period. But what we know from history... If you look up on this slide, uh, you see that Artaxerxes Longamanus, that's another name for Artaxerxes I, historians have found a decree issued on March 5th, 444 B.C. So we know exactly the day that this decree was issued from non-biblical sources. Again, confirmation of what we're reading today. And as I said, we don't have time to go into all of the depth of the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And some of you may be saying, well, that's good because I'm, I really don't care that much about eschatology. I, I don't get excited about this stuff like you do, Roger. My wife is like that. She's like, you know, this is great. I understand. But, you know, she's heard it for 25 years from me. So she's like, okay, if you guys think you've seen the charts before, she's seen them for 25 years, right? <laughs> Let me tell you why this is important. Let me tell you why you should be excited. Because what prophecy tells us, what the fulfillment of things like this tells us is, number one, God is God. God is who he says he is, and God will fulfill what he says. It gives us confidence in Jehovah, in Yahweh, in the God of heaven that we worship. The number two thing you should care about is it tells you why you can trust the scriptures, Why you can believe the Bible when there are so many other ancient texts that are out there that have been disproven by things that are revealed in them that don't come true. The Bible has a 100% success rate in everything it has ever said would happen to date. And the things that are yet to come will have a 100% success rate because God is God and what he says will happen. When we read prophecy, if you read the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, there's a section of prophecy in there. And all throughout Ezekiel, there are more than 50 times where God punctuates his prophecies with a phrase like this, you shall know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord because I said this and it will happen. And that's why prophecy should excite you. That's why these things are important because it shows God who is in control of history is, is one that it, it is evidence of the existence of God. It is evidence of the authority of his word and proof that his plans will be fulfilled both in time and eternity. And it's not just some vague prophecy. We see the period of time that is here. It's, it's almost 500 years. 
So as we're saying, well, the, the fulfillment of the things that are going to happen, if God could just give us kind if I told you something was going to happen 500 years from now, and I said it'll happen within, I don't know, round numbers, 100 years, or it's going to kind of be like this, you'd say, well, you know, sounds like the National Enquirer, Roger. You're just kind of, you know, saying a plane's going to crash in 10 years and people are going to die. That's not what this prophecy is. This prophecy is, is so specific and down to the very day. Let me show you what I'm talking about. When we deal with prophecy, it's not based on a 365-day Gregorian calendar like we use in the West. It's based on a 360-day prophetic year, as you can see in these places that I reference out of Daniel and Revelation. It's called the time times and half a time. It's equated with 1,260 days, as you see in Revelation 11, 3 and 12, 6 which is also 42 months in Revelation 11:2 and 13:5. So as we're dealing with the math here, you got to work with the 360-day calendar. Now, again, I told you that we're going to water ski, so I'm not going to go into all of this. Some of you are saying, I thought it was Labor Day weekend, I'm out of school, I didn't want to have to do math, and now you're putting all this up here. So here's the bottom line. Let me just tell you what you need to see here. The Jewish calendar of 360 days would give you 483 years. That's what we're dealing with in terms of the prophecy of Daniel so far. Remember, there are 77, so there's a seven-year, one period left to come. We already read there are seven times seven and 62 sevens. On our calendar, that would equate to 476 years because you see down at the bottom, 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., you don't count, it's just one year. If your eyes are glazing over, I just want you to again see, this is, this is real stuff. This isn't just making up a number. So the number you need to see is there's 173,880 days in Daniel's prophecy of the first part. In our calendar, we'd say there's 173,740 days. So what that means is, there are 140 days difference. Now, if Roger were giving you a prophecy, you'd go, well, that's pretty good. 140 days within 500 years. Well, we're dealing with God. So God's better than that. So when you figure out this 476-year period, remember we have something called leap years. And so every four years we add in a day, but every centennial year you have to take away a day but every 400th year you add in another day so again you're going what what just happened <laughs> look at the very bottom right it means we just found 115 of our missing days by figuring out this stuff so that means we're short 25 days and you're going hey that's getting better roger well this is god so it gets even better we saw the decree was issued on march 5th Historical records tell us that. So that means that if we add the missing 25 days, we end up with March 30th. So what is so significant about March 30th? On March 30th, 33 AD, there was something called the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Again, you can look at non-biblical sources to have confirmation of this. A man by the name of Jesus Christ... Christ is his messianic title, entered into Jerusalem on this day, March 30th, 33 AD. Why is that so important? Because God revealed in his word that there would be a period of 49 years and the 62 weeks, and he said on that day, based upon when the decree was issued, something would happen. And this is what happened. 
And what we know would happen as you read Daniel 9.26 is it says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and then he was crucified on a cross after that on Nisan 14, 33 AD, or what would be April 3rd, 33 AD on our calendars. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and as he was up on the Mount of Olives, we read in the New Testament where it says he wept. And he said, Jerusalem, if you had known the day of your visitation, if you had known. And we read something like that and we go, well, how in the world would the Jews know the very day that the Messiah would show up? It's right here. God said, I've revealed it. Now, that probably begs the question of, well, if we can figure it out here, why didn't the Jews figure it out then? And the answer is many of them did. Remember that the first Christians were all Jews. Remember that there were many leaders, teachers of the law, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, who were the first believers in Jesus the Messiah. Nicodemus, who was the teacher of the law, the head of the Sanhedrin, believed that Jesus was who he said he was. You read about the presentation of the baby in the temple. You have Simeon and Anna, the prophet and the prophetess, who said, now I can die because you've, you've, I've seen the day of the visitation. You promised I would not die before I got to hold the Messiah, Simeon said. You read about the Magi who show up at the palace and they said to Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Well, how did they know all this? And they're like, oh, they call together religious leaders and they go, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And that's where he was born, fulfillment of all the prophecies. So they knew. Remember, the ones who rejected Jesus as he entered were because they were afraid of losing their power. They wanted to hold on to what they had and they said, we've got to get rid of this guy. Sounds a lot like some of us today, right? The Bible reveals things for us, and we say, well, I don't really like that. It's going to cramp my style. It's going to keep me from the things that I want to do. And what God says is, I am God, and I've revealed things to you. And this is what he told us. When the Messiah would come, that he would be cut off, meaning crucified, in order to pay the penalty of death for our sins. Now, what happened is Jesus, after he was buried in the tomb, rose from the dead three days later. And then he ascended into heaven after walking the earth for 40 days, showing himself to more than 500 witnesses. And the reason he went up to heaven, he told the disciples, I have to go in order for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper to come. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, Acts chapter 2 tells us it occurred on the day of Pentecost, another Jewish feast of significance. And it was then that the church was born. And so we're currently in something that theologians call the church age. And so we are in this period right now. We are still in the church age. Now remember, there's still a seven-year period of time to come. And so we're saying the prophetic clock was put on pause when the Messiah was cut off. So what is going to restart the clock? Well, that is an event called the rapture. And the rapture is when we as Christians will be rapturoed, the Latin word for caught up in the air. We will be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the sky and we will be taken to heaven. And then there will be a second coming of Christ physically to the earth where he will return to the earth. Now, remember, there's still a seven-year period, and that seven-year period is what we call the tribulation. 
It's, it's the tribulation period. As you read Daniel 9.27, it says, but in the middle of the week, that means three and a half years into the seven years is the great tribulation. You've got the seal, bowl, trumpet judgments. I told you we're both water skiing and scuba diving here. I'm water skiing over this because you can go back and listen to this sermon if you want to see all of this in depth and absorb what is happening because I spent a little more time lingering over it in that past sermon. We know about this because as we read in the New Testament in Matthew 24, verse 15, and again in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's where Satan will demand to be worshipped as God. He has his representative set up in the rebuilt temple here on earth. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand, for there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And as you read Daniel 9.27, it ends by telling us, the 70th seven will come to a close with the complete destruction of the satanic representative. And so what happens is, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he returns physically to the earth, read Zechariah chapter 14, he will physically stand on the Mount of Olives, it will be split in two. The rapture is when we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The second coming is a separate event where the armies of heaven, which will include us as raptured believers, will return to the earth. And at that time, the battle of Armageddon takes place. We call it Armageddon. The Hebrew word for mountain is har And the battle, the armies will form at Har Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo, right there at the mountain of Megiddo. And that's why we call it Armageddon. At the battle of Armageddon, Satan will be bound. Revelation 20, verses 2 through 3 says he's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. We talk about the millennial kingdom. As you read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, you see the word a thousand mentioned seven times. And so what happens is there is a thousand year, the Latin word for millennium, millennial kingdom is a thousand. There will be a thousand year period where Jesus is physically reigning from the Davidic throne here on earth. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. He will gather the non-believing people of the day. Again, I wish we had time to go into this. There will be what's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. All the unbelievers who have been born during that thousand years will try to go against God. They are destroyed. They are thrown into the lake of fire, including Satan. Friends, Satan doesn't run hell. He's there being judged himself. Revelation 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 10 tells us he's thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of the lake of fire, there's what's called the great white throne judgment. This is where the non-believers from the beginning of time come before the judgment seat where Jesus will reject them because their name is not in the book of life. And those who are rejected are because they rejected the payment of sin that Jesus made. Remember, Messiah would be cut off. Jesus died on a cross, shedding his blood to pay the penalty of death we owe for our sins. There will be the great white throne judgment, all the non-believers, along with Satan. And you see the beast and the false prophet. They've already been thrown into the lake of fire back in Revelation 19.20. Death and Hades, all of that is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the world in which we live right now is corrupted by sin. You read in Romans, it tells us the creation is groaning, crying out for the day of redemption when perfection will come again. And so God will destroy everything that is corrupt. 
and, and he will recreate the new heavens and the new earth, as you see there in Second Peter 3, and as well as Revelation 20, Isaiah 65 and 66. And then we enter into something called the eternal state. That is, that is what we think of in terms of heaven for all eternity. And you can read about that in Revelation 21 through 22. All right, so take a deep breath because we're done with the chart. So what does all this mean? Why, why is all of this being brought into Nehemiah chapter 2? Well, because I said there is a decree that was issued. When we read in Scripture and we wonder sometimes why, why, God, did you not answer here? Why didn't you begin this here? Why didn't you do this when we asked for it? And the reason for that is God has the whole picture. God has the timeline. God knows what is happening. And Nehemiah carried this burden and he had this broken heart for four months because God said there is a day where the clock will begin. And at this moment, at that time, he had moved in the heart of the king and he also moved to allow the broken heart of Nehemiah to come out and the decree to be issued in order to start the prophetic clock. And we live in a time now where the clock is on hold waiting for the event called the rapture. And when the rapture occurs, we will all be taken to meet the Lord in the air who are believers in Jesus. And then will come that terrible time of the final seven years. We don't know the day that he returns. The Bible says that only God the Father knows. But we do know that once he returns, there will be a seven-year period, a thousand-year period, and then the eternal state. And so for those of us who are here today who have trusted in Jesus, who believe in him, if we can trust God for all eternity, friends, can you not trust him for today? Can you not trust him for tomorrow? I know many of you are facing hard things in your life right now, and you're wondering, where is God and what's he doing? And God holds eternity in his hand, and he holds you in his hand. Read John 10, 28, and 29. It says, God has placed a believer in the nail-scarred hand of Christ, and he's closed his hand around. And then he says, my father, who is greater than all, has closed his hand around. And so God has you in his hand if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we're going to come to the communion table now. And as we come to the communion table, it reminds us of who God is and of his great plan. Because as we saw in Daniel 9, God said there is a time coming where the Messiah would be cut off. That speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It speaks of how Jesus who left his throne in heaven and came to earth and took on flesh and blood for us, willingly went to a cross in order to pay the penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. And what God tells us is that he has a plan, and his plan is for us to come to know his son, to acknowledge we are a sinner, that we've fallen short of his standard of perfection, to acknowledge to God that we owe a penalty. Romans 6.23 tells us the penalty of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what God tells us is he has taken care of the greatest need we ever had, the need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in a moment, there are going to be some elements that are passed. And they represent the gift that God has given to us. As the trays are passed, I want you, if you were a believer in Jesus, to take these cups. Now, there are two cups, so as you reach in, Please make sure that you take both cups. They're together. 
Now, I know some of you get a gluten-free communion wafer in the foyer, uh, but go ahead and take both anyway, because if you leave the one, somebody may take your one cup and not have both. So please take both. And if you're on the front row, there's a little cup holder next to you, or if you're in the other rows, there's a cup holder in front, and you can place that there if you can't have a, a gluten wafer. So take these two cups, and I want you to hold them, and I want you to think about what they mean. Because this cup with the bread represents the body of Jesus, the one who was sent, the one who came and died for our sins. And this cup represents his blood, blood that was shed to save us from our sins. I said, if you're a believer, take both cups. Now, it may be that you're somebody who, to this point, has never accepted Jesus as your Savior. But you recognize today that God is in control of eternity. You recognize today that he is who he said he was. And you're ready to receive Jesus as your Savior. And I invite you then to take these as well. As you do to acknowledge to God that you are somebody who needs him. You need his Savior, his son Jesus to be the payment for your sins. And as you take them, say, God, I believe you're who you said you are. Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So I invite you to accept Jesus today if you've never done so. To take him to be your Messiah, the one who saved you and me from our sins. And so take these elements and hold them. I invite you all to take them, to hold them, to think about what God did, to use this time to pray and confess any sin you might have. And I'll lead us in taking the elements together in a moment. So will you serve us, please? So we hold in our hand a piece of bread or a cup with the bread, representing the bread of life, Jesus Christ. The one that God said would come to save us from our sins. The one that God, in his plan from the beginning, all the way back in the very beginning of Genesis, who said the Messiah would be cut off, that he would bruise, that our, our enemy Satan would bruise the heel of the Savior, but that the Savior would crush his head. God's plan from the beginning was for his son to come, to die, to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. The Messiah would be cut off. And today we remember with gratefulness God's gift to us of his son Jesus, eat it in remembrance of him. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so this cup represents the blood of the Lamb of God, the one that John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, sacrifices have been offered for, for centuries in the temple, and yet those could not remove the penalty of sin. It was only through the promised Messiah, the one who would come, who would give his life as the perfect offering because he owed no penalty of sin himself that we would be saved. The blood of the Lamb Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me please as we pray? Lord God, we thank you for your plan. Your infinite plan that you have in motion one where you have died to save us, Jesus. We thank you for that gift of eternal life. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for leaving your throne in heaven to come to earth to die, to pay that penalty of death that we owed. 
God, we thank you for your great love for us and as recipients of your love, as recipients of your grace, may we go into the world and share the good news of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.